0: Last two weeks, we've looked at the events of Pentecost, and we've also looked at Peter explaining those events from uh, the prophets and the Psalms, and today we enter the results of Peter's gospel preaching. So let's pick it up together in verse 37 and listen to the Word of God and what it is still saying to the churches, and then we'll pray. Father in heaven, you are a good and gracious God. You forgive iniquities. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is your steadfast love towards those who fear you. We thank you for this word, and we pray in Jesus' name that you would use it to convict our hearts and to bring forth repentance, and that you would fill us with the Holy Spirit that we may receive the word with joy and thanksgiving and humility. Glorify your Son now. Amen. Wouldn't you love to preach a two and a half minute sermon and see 3,000 people come to faith? Quite impressive. It's about how long it takes to read Peter's speech. Imagine some of you wouldn't mind if my own messages ran that short. I pray they'd have such impact. But the truth is that Peter actually said much more. Uh, Luke tells us so in verse 40. He says, With many other words he bore witness, and he continued to exhort them. So we're going to stay extra long this morning. (laughs) We're only getting a summary, which gives me an opportunity to talk about speeches in the book of Acts. Speeches make up about a third of the book. None of them are exhaustive. Rather, they're selections of what was said. And I mention this to equip you in, in two ways. One, we shouldn't ever feel like uh, Luke is being dishonest by picking out what he wants. He's told us before that he writes on the basis of eyewitness testimony. Uh, Luke even traveled around with the Apostle Paul for instance, and if anybody questioned Luke's faithfulness, uh, they could ask Paul if he got the summary right. This isn't to mention Luke's own inspiration by the Holy Spirit, who never lies. Moreover, Acts is actually quite similar to other classical historical works. Summary speeches were often included to illuminate the passions of the characters involved. Maybe an example would help that's a little more contemporary. If you took the famous speech of Martin Luther King Jr., and rather than telling us the entire speech, you selected only paragraphs that began with, I have a dream. You'd know right away what drove that man, and you wouldn't accuse the person who selected that portion of misrepresentation. The same is true in Acts. By giving us selections, Luke helps his readers accurately understand the very heart and center driving the early church. And if you put the speeches in Acts, lifted them out, and put them beside one another, you will see that the very center of what was driving the church is the gospel of Jesus Christ. A gospel that was planned in the Old Testament, a gospel that was proclaimed. ...to all nations in the power of the Holy Spirit... ...a gospel that was realized... ...in the life, death, resurrection and ascension of Jesus... ...and a gospel that would be consummated with the return of Jesus... ...to raise the dead and judge the world. It is this gospel... ...that fueled the early church. And that leads to a second observation. By adding speeches to the historical narrative here of God's unfolding plan. Luke paints an important theological backdrop. The purpose of God advances through the Spirit of God, empowering the people of God to speak the Word of God. That's the theological backdrop. The purpose of God in history advances... ...as the word of God is spoken. In this case, Peter has just spoken the gospel word... ...and I want us to look at four ways the gospel works on these people. First, the gospel convicts with the glory of Christ. The gospel convicts with the glory of Christ. Verse 37... Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. The heart is the very core of who we are. Uh, We decide and we will, uh, we speak from the heart. To be cut to the heart is is the undoing of your inner self, your inner person. Uh, Another place the same expression occurs is Isaiah 6, 5. Uh, The curtain of heaven is pulled back. Isaiah gets a glimpse of the holiness and the splendor and the majesty of the Lord seated on His throne. And it undoes Him. He says, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. The Septuagint uses this expression, I am stunned or I am cut. The same here. Can you imagine what they felt? If you were a faithful Jew and you read your Old Testament, and you knew the Messiah was coming, and when he ruled on the throne, he would destroy all his enemies that were against him. And then somebody tells you, "Hey, hey you, know, you know that Messiah. You know you know the God's anointed one that's supposed to come and, and dash the nations to pieces like a potter's vessel? Yeah, 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 I hope He comes soon. Yeah, well, you and I crucified Him two months ago. What? Yeah, we crucified Him. To crucify the Messiah is to side with the enemies that He will crush. Psalm 2 says that He will terrify them in His wrath. You can see they're cut to the heart. What shall we do? Peter then answers in verse 38. But before we tackle that, just, just consider the connection between this reaction and what preceded it here. The preaching of the person and work of Christ convicts them. Preaching the glory of Christ shatters pride and convicts the heart. Now, it's not my goal, nor is it Luke's, to turn Peter's sermon into a method for evangelism, in the sense of, as long as you say these exact things, you are guaranteed brokenness. We know that's not the case, because some get rather violent later on about the same message. But it's at least worth noting a pattern that occurs repeatedly in Acts. The Spirit brings conviction to God's elect through their hearing about Christ. No matter how the apostles start, they race people to Christ. There's not another message that truly reveals the glory of God's holiness and the awfulness of our sin. The gospel of Christ reveals both. And it's by seeing the glory of His life and His death and His resurrection and His present reign that removes, that removes the veil from our eyes. That, that opens the eyes to who God truly is and who we are before Him, that breaks down our faulty worldviews that, that we construct to keep God out of our lives and to keep God away from our idols. When we see Christ truly, we become like Isaiah who feels utter misery over his wretched self. The gospel convicts with the glory of Christ. Christ. Second, the gospel demands we reorient our lives around Christ. We reorient our lives around Christ. It's not enough to feel misery. We actually have to follow the Messiah. Peter gives two commands in verse 38, Repent and be baptized. Now wait just a second, you might say. I thought salvation was by faith alone, by simply trusting in Christ. Well, Peter's not contradicting that. It is by faith alone. Peter's also not being exhaustive. Sometimes he uses repentance. Sometimes faith. Sometimes both together. They're two sides of the same coin. He uses baptism as well. Sometimes he mentions several of these actions together, and sometimes they appear in different orders. His point isn't to explain the, illog- the logical order of our salvation, but to present them all as part of becoming a Christian. We must repent. We must be baptized. What is repentance? It's certainly more than feeling misery over sin. Uh, Some have said that repentance is changing your mind, agreeing with God. It's at least that much, but that's still not quite enough. Repentance throughout Scripture also affects the will and your inner motives. The concept is closer to this Old Testament idea of, of turning or returning to the Lord and away from the sin that estranges us from Him. J.I. Packer describes repentance as the settled refusal to set any limit to the claims which Christ may make on our lives. That's a good definition. The settled refusal to set any limits to the claim which Christ may make on our lives. A person repents when he reorients his will and his desires and his whole purpose around Jesus if we ever think that we can have Jesus and keep our sin too, we are self-deceived. If we ever think that just because we got baptized, just because we had this special experience years ago, just because we prayed a prayer, that we're good to go without any need of moral transformation, we are self-deceived. The sin for which Christ died to forgive he also rose to release us from and to conquer within, and therefore we must turn away from it. We must hate it for the offense it is to God. It's true elsewhere in Scripture that repentance is also a gift from God. God grants repentance. Second 2 Timothy two twenty five. Uh, look there uh, on the next page over at Acts three verse twenty six. It says, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. God grants repentance. And in saying so, we see the age-old truth that God's grace supplies what he also demands. But that should never minimize the demand, should it? Part of God's grace is His Word and His Spirit working together through the demand to move our will to action. So here it is repent. That is the word the Spirit uses. And this makes sense in light of what Peter says about receiving the Holy Spirit. God coming to dwell with His his people. In the Old Testament, nothing unclean, nothing unsanctified was permitted to enter the holy dwelling place of God. What do you think this says when the Christian becomes God's dwelling place? What do you think it says when God makes us His temple? Wherever the Holy Spirit dwells, all that is unholy must go. The greedy person repents by treasuring Christ and then pursuing generosity. The sexually immoral finds satisfaction in Christ and pursues purity in thought and in relationships. The bitter person finds Christ worthy of their love no matter the betrayal and then he or she serves with thanksgiving and joy. The dishonest finds justification in Christ and no longer needs self salvation through lying. He pursues the truth. The self righteous sees his own depravity before the cross and then he walks in humility and dependence on the grace of God. The transgender person recognizes that one's identity must center in Christ and not in human sexuality such that they live according to the way God made them in His image. The addicted discovers that his body is not his own. His members belong to Christ, and so he lets nothing enslave him. The philosopher who once embraced an ideology that made himself the determiner of good and evil, he must now embrace a worldview with God on the throne and Jesus at the center. No matter who you are, what sins you have, the gospel demands repentance. Another part of becoming a Christian is baptism. Peter says, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Baptism sometimes refers to the the inner work of the Holy Spirit. Here, however, he has water baptism in mind. It's not that the two types of baptism have nothing to do with each other, but that water baptism is the outward sign of what the Spirit does within. Baptism is the initiatory sign of identifying with Christ. And we see here that it's an act the church does to us. Be baptized in the passive twice. In that sense, baptism is an act of the church that confirms our identity with Jesus and with His new community. Doing it in the name of Jesus Christ acknowledges His Lordship. If you look there at uh, chapter 2, verse 21, the prophet Joel, who said, Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, it's the last place we see the name of the Lord, shall be saved. Peter is now explaining what happens when one calls upon the Lord's name. We outwardly identify with Jesus Christ as Lord through water baptism. Now, because of the way it gets develop, developed elsewhere in the New Testament, uh, Romans 6, Colossians 2, we should add that baptism includes what Jesus' lordship implies about the achievement of his cross. If Jesus isn't Lord, then the cross of Christ means nothing. Nothing. But if Jesus is truly risen and truly exalted to God's right hand, then His death really was the decisive victory over our sin. And when we're baptized into His name and not another, we're saying that the benefits of salvation are found in Jesus and Jesus alone and in no one else. The benefits include forgiveness of sins and the promised spirit. Which leads us now to a third way the gospel works on this crowd and in our lives. The gospel promises forgiveness in Christ and the Spirit of Christ. The gospel promises forgiveness in Christ and the Spirit of Christ. It's rather stunning, especially for Baptists, the way Peter puts things here. Be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Some have concluded from this that forgiveness must come automatically with water baptism quite apart from faith. Or that this supports baptismal regeneration. We need not go there for a few reasons. God sometimes grants forgiveness or implies that people have it without mentioning water baptism. The thief on the cross is a common example. But Acts chapter 3 verse 19 is another where we see simply repent that your sins may be blotted out with no mention of baptism. Also in chapter 10, verse 43, Peter says that everyone who believes in Jesus receives the forgiveness of sins. So he links forgiveness with faith in Christ. Their, their baptism doesn't come till afterward. And also in Acts 26, verse 18, it's forgiveness, both forgiveness and sanctification... ...come simply by faith in Christ. In other words, let's not read more into the four than what's actually there. Especially in light of places where forgiveness is present and baptism isn't. At the same time... ...let's not so drive a wedge between baptism and forgiveness... ...that we lose the relationship that's truly present... Water baptism is a sign of our forgiveness and cleansing in Christ. The forgiveness isn't bound up with what happens in the water itself, but what happens in our faith union with Christ by the Spirit, which water baptism pictures before others. Those who truly believe get baptized in Jesus' name, signifying for all that Jesus and Jesus alone has forgiven their sins. You can imagine what statement that was making before a crowd of Jews offering sacrifices down the street. And now you're getting baptized saying, no, 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 forgiveness isn't found in those. It's found in Jesus. I'm identifying with Him. But let's clarify forgiveness. Because the assumption is that people need it here. In fact... The assumption is that even devout religious people need it in our passage. Peter has in mind the forgiveness that God does to us. God is holy and we have offended him by our wayward desires and attitudes towards his law. We stand guilty before the judge for our rebellion, uh, our sin. And the consequent is eternal death or punishment by God. But when God the Judge forgives somebody, He does more than just pardon us. Pardoning us means He frees us from the punishment. We can escape that punishment because because God punished Jesus in our place. But forgiveness also extends to the removal of sin. The cleansing of all that makes us guilty before God. Most of us get bothered by dirt and stains on our clothes. We invest lots of money in our culture, and energy, and washing, and scrubbing, and changing, and dressing, so as to be presentable, and not offensive to others when we meet them. If humans are offended by something as simple as each other's filth, imagine the offense we cause the Holy God with our sinful For him to forgive us, though, is for him to wash us clean from the filth and pardon us, that we might come into his holy presence without fear. It's even better than that, isn't it? He gives us new clothes, Jesus' righteousness. This is good news. By identifying with Christ, filthy, guilty, perishing people become clean, acquitted, and pardoned people. That's one benefit. Forgiveness, and it's available to all of you who make Jesus your Lord and trust in His death on your behalf. Another benefit of identifying with Jesus' Lordship is the promised Spirit. Again, in verse 38, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What does this entail? We're helped by uh, what he calls the Holy Spirit in verse 39, the promise. Jesus referred to him as the promise before. The gift of the Holy Spirit is the same as the promise, which means that we should find a few things about him in the Old Testament. So I want to take you there, just to a few places. Turn first to Isaiah 32. Isaiah 32 we're looking for promises associated with the Holy Spirit's coming from the Old Testament. So Isaiah 32, uh, this is uh, verse 15 I'll begin reading. It's also a passage that in verse 1 speaks of the reign of the future Messiah. But here we go, Isaiah 32, verse 15. Basically, the exile will continue until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high... And the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. And then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. And the effect of righteousness will be peace, and the result of righteousness, quietness, and trust forever." What's the picture? The effusion of God's life in the Spirit will establish righteous values and a peace filled society in a new creation, an Eden like creation. Look with me now at Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44. I'll start reading in verse 3. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour My Spirit upon your offspring and My blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob, and another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. What's the picture here? The outpoured spirit blesses people with new life and brings them into fellowship with God. Note the tattoo the Lord's. It means God is personally committed to you. Let's do one more. This is Ezekiel 36. So turn to Ezekiel 36 few more prophets to the right of Isaiah. Ezekiel 36, verse 25. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you We're seeing here that the Holy Spirit is an idol smasher and a heart surgeon. He cleanses us from idols and He gives us a new heart that's no longer biased against the Lord, but willingly submits to the Lord. He changes stubborn idolaters into willing servants. These are just a few things bound up with this promised spirit in the Old Testament And they all belong to us when we identify with Jesus as Lord. Now you might object. Ah, but I thought those promises were made to Israel. They were. But Jesus is the true Israel. And if you're united to Him, they belong to you as well. Look at what Peter says in verse 39. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off everyone whom the lord our god calls to himself he says for you that's the jews he's talking to he says for your children that's the generations to come he says for all who are far off that's the gentiles like us paul uses the same language in ephesians 2 comes from isaiah 57 this far offness We were separated from Christ, these Gentiles. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. We were that kind of far off. But in Christ, we too get the promise. We too get the Spirit. The promise is for, it says, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. Doesn't matter if you're a prim and proper religious prig from Jerusalem or a serial adulterer from downtown Fort Worth. If the Lord is pleased to call you to himself, you get the promised spirit. And he will be for your desert thirsty soul a fountain of life ref- life-giving refreshment. He turns deserts into streams and old leftover junk into beautiful new creations. He transforms angry atheists into adopted agents of grace, this Spirit of Christ. You may feel far off and ashamed, but this Spirit brings the far off near to God and then clothes them with glory. There is hope for us because of the Spirit of Christ. So you, you everyone, need not hold back from coming to Jesus and coming to Him often. Finally, the fourth work we see the Gospel doing. The gospel creates a new community for Jesus. The gospel creates a new community for Jesus. Verse 40. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. And so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So you have the crooked generation, these are the people opposed to Christ, and then you have these 3,000 whom God saves out of the crooked generation, that's the only kind of people that are in the church, those who were once crooked. He saves them out of the crooked generation and makes them his own community, and they live very, very differently, as we will see next week when we cover verses 42 to 47. 47. Here, I just want us to note that, again, Luke's not laying out a methodology for church growth. He's not saying that if you do X, Y, and Z, then 3,000 people are in. Yes, the 3,000 is amazing. Yes, we should pray the Lord keeps adding to the church. We should pray for the Lord to add him to to our church, too. But let's be careful not to pretend like we're the only church. God is still adding to the church worldwide. Watch the DVD series, uh, Dispatches from the front, where this journalist travels around the world to report how the gospel is advancing among unreached peoples. I've got the series. You want to borrow it? You can. Read websites like Joshua Project. Stay in touch with our missionaries. Talk to other churches in the area. The onward march of the gospel has not been stifled, and it will not until all peoples hear. The Lord is adding. People And notice that. The Lord adds people. The Lord calls people. We must simply be faithful with the gospel and leave the results to Him. But are we being faithful with the gospel? Is it a message we bring into the lives of others? As we see here, the kingdom of God advances when the word of God is spoken. And we have an amazing message to tell the world, do we not? We can go to anybody, anywhere, no matter where they've been, what sins they've been enslaved to, and offer them forgiveness. Jesus is able to forgive you for the worst of the worst. What's the worst sin you could do? I mean, if you just really went off the deep end. What would that that look like? Adultery? An abortion, a sex change, embezzlement, theft, devil worship. If that's as far as you go, perhaps you're missing how truly awful our corruption really is. The truth is that all of us are guilty for the worst of the worst, the crucifixion of God's own son. He is infinitely worthy and we treated the infinitely worthy like a despicable curse. You don't get any worse than that. All of us belonged to that kind of crooked generation who opposed Christ and crucified Him. The sins He died were, for our, were our sins too. You see, these are the kinds of people that Peter offers forgiveness. Notice verse 36. This Jesus whom you crucified. And then he goes on to offer them forgiveness and the promised spirit. If forgiveness is being extended to those who did the worst of the worst, then that should give us great confidence that God can forgive us, no matter what we've done, no matter where we've been. Forgiveness is for crooked people, not people who think they've got it together. Something else we learn from this passage is this. The gospel requires a response from people. It requires a response. We we can't simply offer abstract truths about God and about the gospel without also pleading with people to respond to those truths. Preaching involves pleading. Do you think there are people that maybe you've shared the truth of the gospel with, but you've never called them to repent? You've never called them to, re- to believe? You've never called them to be baptized? The gospel carries a demand, and that too must be part of our message when we talk to them. Don't not call people to repentance and baptism just because you've seen it done badly in the past. We also can't choose to confess abstract truths for ourselves without also responding to them. We hear this word preached every Sunday. But are we walking out repentance based on the word we heard? We attend Bible studies. You have BSF and Discipleship Hour and Care Group and books like Desiring God and Radical and Glimpses of Grace. We have our beloved iPod, Preachers and Teachers and Conferences and ESV Study Bible Apps. An inundation of the Word of God. What kind of repentance is it producing? We will have no excuse on Judgment Day God is not at fault for our apathy or dullness of heart. The Gospel demands we respond. It carries the authority of the King. And at the same time, we have to remember that God is able to change us. Every grace that we need to change has been offered in Christ and available by the Spirit. Therefore, ask God for the ability to walk out repentance. Come to His Word. Don't listen to the iPod preacher or whatever else. until your heart, is ready to receive it in such a way that you humble yourself and repent. Ask God for the ability. Let your I can't become he can, and then act. If you're a believer but haven't been baptized, come talk to us and we'll get there. One last thing. Don't cancel one truth in Scripture by emphasizing another. Don't cancel one truth in Scripture by emphasizing another. As I said earlier, we must repent, but God also grants repentance. Those truths aren't mutually exclusive. There's another example in this passage as well. Look at verse 21 again. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. But verse 39, look at verse 39, it says this. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Which is it? Do we call or does he call? Yes. They're both true. How many times you walk up on these debates that go something like this. We choose God. See? i think pointing out the scripture text in the Bible. No, we don't. God chooses us. See? Learn how to say yes if the Bible is asserting things and then work hard to figure out how they fit together. For these truths, they relate to each other causally. We call upon the Lord because the Lord calls us. We repent from our sins because the Lord grants us repentance. Human responsibility, God's gracious initiative. God grants to His people what He also demands from His people. Salvation is all His doing, but it is also relational. We act upon the Gospel, but in the end, He gets all the glory for it. That's why we're going to sing another song in a few minutes. For His glory. He gave up His Son. He granted us repentance. He brought forgiveness. He has poured out The Spirit, He deserves all the praise. Let's pray before we do.